Well, happy Easter, everyone. So good to be with you digitally here. Uh, the way we usually start our Easter services is the way that the church has started them for centuries, uh, with a little call and response. I'll say, the Lord is risen, and you respond right there in your home by saying, He is risen indeed. So I'll say, the Lord is risen. You say, the Lord is risen indeed. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Well, I have to be honest and say this is quite possibly the weirdest Easter ever. Right now, I'm preaching into a camera in an empty building that should be full of singing and praying and listening and communing with God together as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. As your leaders, I just want you to know again that we miss you, we love you, and we are praying for you, and we long to gather again with you physically. We are definitely more of an analog than a digital kind of church, but I'm thankful to God for the technology that allows us to love our neighbors well during this pandemic and to still be able to gather here together online. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn, or a Bible app on your device, to turn to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read our scripture this morning, which is found in Revelation 1, verses 8 through 20. The Apostle John under the inspiration of the Spirit, says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We may be wondering uh, why on earth, on Easter Sunday, would we be reading from this strange, cryptic, dystopian book known as Revelation? Shouldn't we save this kind of thought for some kind of a Walking Dead Netflix binge? Why not just go straight to the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why Revelation? And I want to explain some of the context of this letter and why I actually think in this moment of a global pandemic and crisis, we need this word more than ever. 
Now, even though Revelation was written in the late first century, there are at least two truths that transcend time and space and connect us to them. First, they, like us, were cloistered in their homes, very aware and very afraid of their mortality, their vulnerability, and death. And secondly, they were, in the midst of all of that chaos, looking for someone or something to deliver them from the power of death. The Apostle John, many scholars believe, wrote this letter while in exile on the island of Patmos. And he was writing to comfort a group of churches who were experiencing what he calls the tribulation or the affliction, a great temptation to panic and abandon Jesus while living under the constant threat of death and oppression in the shadow of the Roman imperial system that was built on political tyranny and economic exploitation and military violence. These churches regularly faced wars, plagues, famines, persecutions. During this, what some historians have called the reign of terror, people, especially Christians, lost their businesses. They lost their homes. They suffered economic losses. Many even abandoned their faith. Paul and Timothy and Peter, leaders in the early church, had all been murdered during this period. Those who stayed faithful to Jesus were being fed to the lions. They were being captured and and covered with pitch and set on fire as lamps to light the roads that were leading into Rome. Some of them even had holes drilled in their heads while they were still alive and molten metal poured into their very skulls. And just like us, when they found themselves up against a power that threatened them with death, that literally held the keys to their life, they were afraid, they were anxious, and they were despairing. You see, death has always, regardless of time, place, culture, been the great enemy of the human race. And I think in our moment, what the pandemic has done to the entire globe is that it has shoved death right back into our faces, taken it from the periphery right into the center of our living rooms all day, every day. The general global feeling of, at least in some cultures, in some places, prosperity and progress has given way to the daily temptation of panic. It has caused our imaginations to run wild, and it has caused us to feel overwhelmed by just incessant fear and anxiety. Hundreds and thousands of people are dying literally every day. And not just in some distant, faraway land. These are our family, our friends, our neighbors. And for the first time in our lives, for some of us as adults, death now has a face. It has a name. It has a story. Now, prior to the pandemic, death seemed like a distant possibility for many of us. Many of us worked diligently to deny the reality of our impending death. We have, all of us, massive coping strategies for dealing with death or the thought of death. Some of us do that through a series of endless distractions eating and drinking and traveling and networking and achieving and trying to curate the kind of Instagrammable lifestyle that, if we're honest, gave us a sense of superiority, gave us a sense of invincibility. Others of us tried to numb the pain of disappointment or our resentment towards death by throwing ourselves into chemicals and video games and pornography or possibly binging on food or alcohol 
is a way to avoid having to think about our mortality. Ernest Beckard, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, wrote a book called The Denial of Death in 1973. And he talks about this struggle that we have, this, this kind of split self that we experience in our, everyday, uh, in our everyday lives. And here's what he says. He says, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty. And yet, he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. The lower animals are, of course, spared this painful contradiction. They live and they disappear with the same thoughtlessness. A few minutes of fear, a few minutes of anguish, and it's over. But to live a whole lifetime with the fate of death haunting one's dreams and even the most sun-filled days, that is something else. That is the reality that every believer faced in the early Roman Empire, and that is the reality that for many of us, in a different kind of way in our day, we too now are living with on a daily basis. They were afraid of death, as we are afraid of death, and they also were looking, like we are, for someone to save them from the power of death. During their cultural moment, the temptation was to see the Roman Empire and all uh, kind of at the height of its dominance and power and glory, so to speak, to look to the Roman Empire, which at that time had the most advanced and prosperous military and technology and educational systems and economy in global history, and, and to look to that system to protect them from these feelings of mortality and vulnerability and weakness and to bring them salvation. Uh, they even talked about the, kind of the, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, the, the, the salvation that Rome brought to their world. And Rome's proposition was that she could be, in a sense, a god who brings security and prosperity and health in exchange for worship and total allegiance. Even the way some of the emperors set up their own titles, they called themselves the everlasting kings, they called themselves gods, and they were to be worshipped as God. Caesar is God, and to him alone you owed your total and complete allegiance. And I think we too, in a different kind of way, in a moment with so much panic and fear and chaos, are anxiously looking around for someone or something to deliver us, oftentimes looking to the very same things, technology and prosperity and science, to try to engineer our way through this crisis to deliver us from the power of death. And what John was writing to remind these churches and what we need to hear today is what they needed in that moment more than anything else was a compelling vision of the risen Jesus, one that would capture their imagination to see that there was more happening than what they could take in with their physical senses. There was more happening in reality than what they could see, what they could taste, what they could hear, what they could feel. And that's why we call this an apocalyptic letter. The word apocalypse or apocalyptic simply means a revelation or a disclosure or a pulling back of the curtain to see an alternative reality, to see something that's already there, but to see it in its fullness, in its full transcendence, transcending kind of the, the limited horizons of possibility that we are under when our frame of vision narrows under fear and anxiety. And what John says is you need better optics. You need to recover 
your spiritual vision. John is saying there is a reality that is more real than what you even consider to be the quote-unquote real world. And I think that's the very same word that we need to hear today on Easter and every day, really. And so I want us to consider just quickly here a couple of questions. I want us to answer a couple of questions together as we look at the resurrection of Jesus and this testimony of the risen Jesus from John. First, what did John see? When John looked out, what kind of spiritual vision did he have and what do we need to see as we look to Jesus? The second question is, how did John respond and what does that tell us about how we should respond? And then thirdly, I want us to see what the risen Jesus had to say to John, and by extension, I believe the risen Jesus has to say to us this morning. So first, what did John see? He talks a lot about sight in the book of Revelation. And before we get into that, what what makes this account of his vision so compelling and so credible to me is that John isn't just some kind of weird megalomaniac cult leader dreaming this stuff up in a compound somewhere in Texas. The Apostle John was one of Jesus' disciples and one of his closest personal friends and an eyewitness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the same John who in another letter, 1 John, recounts the physicality and the intimacy of his friendship with Jesus. He says, I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him with my hands. I I know his scent. I smelled his breath. I broke bread with the human Son of God. A good Jew like John wouldn't have expected a man like Jesus to rise from the dead in the middle of history any more than you or I would expect a man to rise from the dead today. They weren't just gullible, uneducated, backwoods Jewish people. They knew that dead people stay dead. And in a time of persecution like the one that John's facing here, it wouldn't do him any favors to be fabricating continual ongoing myths about a cult leader who was still dead if it wasn't true. This same Jesus that he knew intimately, who he saw ascend to the sky the very last time at Pentecost, was now the same Jesus that was appearing to him again in the fullness of his glory and his power. So that we, we see that this isn't just some kind of private, mystical experience. This was a public event. This was something that really happened. And I want to encourage, if you're a skeptic, to consider this as a historical event, as something that really happened, as something that there's really no other plausible explanation for other than that John actually saw Jesus. And he, and he talks about seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus a lot. Like he, he says throughout the book of Revelation, I saw this 40 times. He says, I heard this 32 times. He says, I I looked 19 times. John is drawing our attention to this full sensory, whole person encounter that he had with Jesus. He's saying, hey, pay attention. So what did this close friend of Jesus see? Well, he's making here a very bold claim for the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God. What I saw is God himself back from the dead. And he uses all kinds of language here to make the case for the divinity of Jesus. He's saying this is not just a moral teacher. This is not just a philosopher. This is not just a dude. This is God in the flesh. He, he notice he uses the language in verse 8. He says, Jesus says to him, I am the alpha and the omega. He talks about being the alpha, the Greek alphabet. Alpha was first, omega was last. The first and the last the beginning and 
the end. That word beginning is the word for archetype, right? It's, he's saying, I am the archetype of all creation. I am the very creator God who made, in the beginning, was God. In the beginning was Jesus. I'm the one who created the universe, and I am the one that will be there at the end. I am your history, he says, and I am your destiny. He also uses this terminology that would have been familiar to a Jew, uh, the phrase, the son of man. And he says, I saw one as a son of man. What he's doing here, and there's, there's over 500 references in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament, different quotes and allusions throughout the book of Revelation. But he's, he's piling on these old, this Old Testament imagery to say, this is the Messiah who was promised. This God is not just some anomaly. This isn't somebody who popped up out of nowhere. This is the God who promised to come and to rescue and to redeem and to save his people. It's a fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies over the years that had come to God's people about the Messiah. He, he talks about uh, a lot of this language comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel had this vision of the Son of Man, one who would ride in on the clouds, the Ancient of Days, he called him. And he, he describes all of these different aspects of his person, talking about his appearance. This all comes right from the book of Daniel. You can read some, about some of it in Daniel chapter 10 and some other chapters there in the book. He talks about him having white hair, hair white as wool, white as snow, speaking of the wisdom of God, the eternality of God. He says his eyes look like fire. They're holy. They're piercing, right? If you've ever seen somebody with beautiful eyes, they just kind of seem to pierce your soul. And he says Jesus is so holy like God because he is God. His feet are like fine bronze representing strength. His voice is like the roaring waters speaking of his power. His face is shining. It's like looking into the sun. He has such a a thick presence and a a beauty about him. All of these analogies he's using to just say this is, is God. He also, Jesus goes on to say, I am the living one. I am the risen Savior of the world who is back from the dead and who is coming again to make all things new. I love this phrasing of I'm, I'm coming. Like Jesus is not in heaven standing back passively watching the world go into suffering. He is coming. He is active over and over. We hear this refrain in the book of Revelation that he is coming again. So John saw what he believed to be the risen Savior, the risen Jesus. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Do you even see Jesus at all? See, everyone has a lens through which they see God or don't see God, choose not to see God. For some of us in the Midwest, we are very sentimental when it comes to our views of Jesus. He inspires us. He gives us warm fuzzies. The Jesus of kind of our childhood around Easter time gives us these warm feelings. For others of us, we see Jesus as a moral teacher who came to give us doctrine and ethics. And for others of us, I think for most of us in the Midwest, we're not necessarily angry at God. Just Jesus is kind of out on the periphery. He's, he's a peripheral God who doesn't just kind of doesn't really impact us a whole lot. We don't really think about him a whole lot. We certainly don't have this vision of the risen Jesus that John has. And I would argue if we don't have a vision of Jesus like John, it's easy for us to get sucked into a culture of despair. I mean, there's so much despair that's being thrown around. It's just the air that we breathe as we face a difficult and brutal world. It's easy for us to get cynical. It's easy for us to start to despair, 
even for believers, to fall into despair is not that hard. Ronald Rollheiser, a Catholic priest, writes this about despair and the temptation of despair. He says, despair is the death of our sense of surprise, the belief that nothing new can happen to us. We despair at the precise moment when consciously or unconsciously we say in resignation, that is the way that I am. That is the way things have always been for me. And that is the way it will always be. For me, it's too late. Once this has been said, we are in a tomb. Much of us is dead, and more of us is still dying. How many of us find ourselves feeling like we're living in a tomb of despair? Even despite our success, even despite our prosperity, we can feel, life can feel like we're trapped in a tomb. He goes on to write, why is this kind of despair so dangerous? Because the resurrection is always, as it was the first time, a surprise. The totally unexpected, the impossible, and that which defies all logic, laws of nature, and the wisdom of common sense and convention. When we have every angle of reality so calculated and figured that we know all the possibilities, then nothing new can come along to surprise us. Sadly, our prophecy will be self-fulfilling because we have ceased believing in God and grace in a real sense. We have slimmed down God and grace to fit our own small minds. We live not merely in despair, but also in mediocrity. How many of us don't see Jesus, or if we see Jesus, it's not the kind of sight, the kind of optics that lead us away from mediocrity. As a matter of fact, it kind of reinforces our mediocrity and our superficiality, and it leaves us trapped in despair. So John sees Jesus, and notice how he responds. The Bible says that he literally falls down on his face. Now, why does John fall down on his face? What does that mean, and what does that tell us about how we should be responding to Jesus? John falls down on his face because he, he looks into the face of God, and in the face of God, John saw both himself and God clearly. He sees on the one hand the stunning glory of God, the, the glory of God, that word glory means weight or heaviness or power. He sees the weightiness of God, but he also then, by contrast, sees his own weakness, his own sinfulness. Compared to the glory of God, he says, I am nothing, I am sinful, I am undone. See, that's true for all of us. When we encounter realities more powerful than us that make us feel out of control or helpless or powerless, our normal response is to fall down and be paralyzed. Maybe not physically, but certainly emotionally and mentally and spiritually. We get paralyzed. And I think for many of us, the pandemic has done that very thing to us in the face of something that feels so big and so powerful. It's robbed us of a sense of agency, a sense of control over our lives. The illusion that we had prior to the pandemic was maybe, for some of us, that we had control. That if we make enough money, get enough education, secure enough achievements, that we can protect ourselves from the vulnerabilities and limitations of our humanity. In that sense, the pandemic is teaching us a powerful spiritual lesson. If we can be humbled medically by an imperceptible microbe, how much more should we be humbled spiritually by the presence of the risen Jesus? We were created for God, by God, to experience communion with God, to, to look into the face of God and to see our hearts and our soul's deepest longings satisfied and fulfilled. But because of our sin, we've been separated from God. We cannot 
any longer look into the face of God. We were banished from the face of God back in Genesis chapter 3. And our sin separates us from a holy God. And that's the response, a very normal response when people encounter the goodness and the holiness and the grandeur of God in the Bible. I think about Isaiah and Daniel and Paul. They fall down because they know they don't belong in the presence of God. It literally tears them apart. It begins to rip them apart at the fabric of their being when they look into the face of pure love, pure holiness, pure justice, pure beauty. It's like looking into the sun, or we use this analogy uh, in our Exodus series. It's like having a nuclear power plant in your backyard. God is more like a nuclear power plant than a yoga studio in your backyard. We can't handle, we get burned up and torn apart when we get into his presence. So the falling down is an acknowledgement that he's not worthy. But it's also a posture of worship and saying, but Jesus is, he is worthy to be worshiped. And so as we look to Jesus, we see one who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we should have died, and who now becomes for us by faith and through grace, our alpha and omega, our beginning and our end, our history and our destiny, our life, and the one who holds the keys to death. That brings us to our last point here, our last question, what Jesus says to John. We see utter terror come over John as he sees Jesus for who he really is and sees himself in light of who Jesus is. And I want you to see just how tender Jesus deals with John. John is down at his feet as though dead. He's stunned. He is terrified. Notice Jesus reaches out to him, and he touches him. He lays his hands on him, and he says the words that are said over and over and over again when God visits his people in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Fear not. He touches him like a frightened child. And what Jesus is is not saying here is, don't worry about anything. There's nothing to be afraid of. You'll be fine, right? Like, don't worry about your fear. In this time of a pandemic, in this crisis that we're in, there is plenty to be afraid of. Losing vulnerable loved ones, losing our jobs, losing our financial security, our kids' education, our mental health, our relationships, wedding celebrations, funerals, mourning, opportunities to mourn and grieve, the return of old addictions. There is a lot to be afraid of. But here's the thing. The reality is those fears were already there before the pandemic. We just didn't feel them as desperately and dramatically as we do now. See, fear is the body's automatic response to a perceived threat. It's hardwired into our limbic system when we perceive a threat to respond with fear and anxiety. It's natural and it's often unconscious. And what Jesus is not saying is deny your fear. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry. Be happy. What Jesus is saying is actually go ahead and name that fear, be honest about it, but then bring it to me. Jesus is saying, I am the one who holds the keys to the thing you most fear, death itself. I am the one who died in your place for your sin, went under the curse of death, was subjected to the very powers of hell, descended into hell, the Apostles' Creed says. But the one who has risen from the dead, who's who could not be held down by the powers of death, by the enemy, by the evil one, by death and Hades, the the domain of darkness and of punishment. 
Death, he says, does not have the final word. Yes, there are real things to be afraid of, things that many of us may suffer in the weeks and months and years to come. But Jesus says what's most true about us is not that we will die, but that we have the very power and presence of the resurrected Jesus flowing in us. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life abundantly. If we look to Jesus to deliver us, he will do so. He has promised that he has risen from the dead, and what he wants us to do is desperately trust him, to reach out to him in faith, not to deny our fear, but to bring our fears to the very one who holds authority. He says, don't fear those who kill the body. I mean, what a time to believe in the resurrection of Jesus right now. Don't fear those things, those microorganisms. Don't fear those governing authorities. Don't fear anything that can kill the body, ultimately. But fear the one who has authority over the author, the one who holds power over death itself. And he will deliver you. He will raise you up. I love these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The apostle Paul, who knew a lot about fear and anxiety. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. That's the comfort that Jesus wants to bring to us, and he also wants to give us confidence. He says, look, I'm alive. I'm not dead. I have risen from the dead. I am back from the dead, and I am making all things new. And if Jesus is alive, John says, then that changes everything. There is plenty to fear, but notice Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands. He is walking in the midst of the churches, just as he was with Daniel in the lion's den. Right? Jesus is walking with us in the midst of our furnaces. When the fire of life gets cranked up to its hottest, Jesus says, I want you to look over and over again. He says, look to me, look to me, look to me, come to me, fix your hearts. This word look is the word behold. Fix your gaze, fix the interior vision of your heart on my beauty and on my stability and on my glory. And I want you to build a rhythm of life that embeds this reality in the depths of your soul, that captures your imagination, stirs your heart, and moves you towards trust and worship and confidence in God, which means that you're going to have to be careful to guard your imagination. You're going to have to be careful that fear doesn't crowd out and and narrow your, your horizons, to only see what's right in front of you, to listen to the loudest voices that, like the Roman Empire, invite us to look to powerful institutions and powerful systems instead of looking to God for our peace, our joy, and our happiness. It's easy to get caught up looking and listening to media or self-help social media influencers or scientists or our parents or the government or capitalism or even our own little moralistic systems of religion that tell us if we do the right things, then nothing bad will happen to us. And what John says is, no, that is an illusion. It is a beast that will ultimately devour you. It is a harlot, he goes on to say, that will corrupt you and will not bring about your joy and happiness. And so Jesus says, what I want for you is confidence. I want you to fix your gaze on me. Look to me. Look to me. And I will raise you up and I will preserve you. 
I will bring you into the resurrection power that will sustain you through hard times. I'll close with this line from earlier in chapter 1. I love this vision for us as a people, a resurrected people following a resurrected Jesus. Uh, John says, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to be free from the fear of death, to trust him and to trust that he holds the keys to that thing that is most scary to us, death itself. And he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. He sets us free from the fear of death so that we can be a life-giving presence in our community. We are free to believe in the resurrection. We are free to live out the implications of the resurrection. And I believe that deep-seated belief, that kind of vision, that kind of seeing what doesn't seem to be real but is actually the most real thing in the world is the only thing that's going to sustain sacrificial love and flourishing in the midst of the times in which we find ourselves. And so my prayer for you, my hope for you today is that you would believe in, that you would see and experience the transforming love of the resurrected and risen Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this invitation that we have on Easter to trust in you, to look and to behold and to see your goodness and your glory in the midst of our fear. You invite us to fear not. And so, God, I pray that you would meet us in our fear, meet us in our anxiety, help that fear to lead us to you, to fall down at your feet and worship and to hear you and to see you touching us on the shoulder and saying, hey, fear not. Look, I am the living one. I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. I am the first and the last. Those who believe in me will never be abandoned. They will never be cut off. God, speak those words again to our hearts today in a way that we can understand and feel in our guts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.